open your Bibles to Jonah chapter 3. I don't know about you, but when I think of certain periods in history, particularly in American history, I have a tendency to think of those areas of time in terms of moral decency. I think of like the 1700s and the colonial era, and I have a romanticized view of the people as being generally kind and upstanding and good citizens, but in reality, that's not true. Sure, there are lots of things in our day that they would find absolutely morally reprehensible, but there are also things in their day that we would never tolerate now. For example, the abomination of slavery. The reality is the same sins that permeate our hearts today, they are the same sins that were alive and active in those days. They might be expressed in slightly different avenues, but they are the same sins. The people in the colonies, they were filled with lust and anger and violence and greed, but in 1734, the Lord did something unique in American history. God began to do something amazing. He began using flawed men like Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield and the Wesley brothers to cut through the fog of sin and write to the hearts of many people. Over the following decades, tens of thousands of believers became more convicted of their sin and became more faithful in their living out of the gospel. And thousands upon thousands of unbelievers and nominal Christians trusted in Christ in a genuine way for the first time. And the effects of this led to directly the effect of the Revolutionary War and eventually the founding of our nation. And this revival has come to be known as the First Great Awakening. Revival is a funny word. It's not something that we can force. It's not a scheduled event. Sometimes people will say, come to our church, we're having a revival. Well, that's not how that works. And it's what happens when God works in a special way to radically draw a society to himself. And that's what occurred in America in the 1700s. But in an even larger way, that's what happens here in Jonah chapter 3. Here we find one of the largest and most powerful revivals in all of human history. So please follow along now as I begin to read in Jonah chapter 3, verse 1. This is God's word. It says, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father God, we are so thankful that there are occasions when you do a massive work in a culture to transform many lives. And Lord, we ask that that would be what we observe on Long Island in our lifetime. 
Father God, we pray that you would use us as agents of change, that we might be your ambassadors here in this place, in this time, to serve as part of what you are doing to bring many sons to glory. Father, we ask that you would help us to understand what it happens when revival takes place so that we might be careful to pray rightly and have expectancy of what you will do. Father, help us now to understand your word and apply it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. When we last left Jonah, he had just been vomited out by a large fish or possibly a whale. Now let's consider what that must have been like for a moment. Now in order for the fish to return Jonah to land, it likely immediately turned in the direction of the coast as soon as he picked up Jonah and began swimming in that direction. Have you ever seen a fish throw up? I have not seen this. I don't know what that appears to look like. But if you ever have seen a fish throw up, I would assume it would be very difficult for a fish to vomit while being in the water and project a human being into the air and onto the land. However, that's what it sounds like is occurring here from the text, that the fish is in the water, and then it says it vomits him up onto the shore. So what exactly is happening here? Most scholars actually believe that this word vomit does not actually mean to puke out the human being. Rather, it means to expel from or burst forth from, which is literally what the word means, to burst forth. And so more than likely, what occurs with this fish is that the fish swims in the direction of the beach and then is beached and is laying there in the hot Mediterranean sun until it bloats. And I don't know if you've ever seen this, but you can find videos, I found them myself, on YouTube of what happens when a fish bloats and then it bursts and explodes when it's on a on the sand. So most likely this third day, Jonah is in the fish. He is praying and the fish is actually actually on the shore. And after his prayer ends, the fish explodes and he comes bursting forth and is then sitting there on the beach. And that is where we find Jonah as we start our text this morning. Now I see that you, some of you are looking at me thinking, wow, that's pretty disgusting. But honestly, what's the difference from being puked out of the side of a fish or puked out of the front of the fish? It's still being puked out of a fish. Consider what this would have done to Jonah's body. His skin was probably absolutely bleached from stomach acid. It's likely that his hair would have been falling out in patches. His eyes would probably have been a deep red from all the irritation. And his flesh would have been as wrinkled as a raisin. And honestly, worst of all, he would have smelled like the inside of a fish. But imagine for a moment sitting on that beach. Imagine being Jonah in that moment. I'm sure that immediately he was thanking the Lord that he was back on land. But God does not even give him a day to rest and recover before he begins telling him what's next. Instead, we find these words in Jonah 3.1. He says, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. So now it's time for Jonah to show that he is repentant, that it is genuine by getting up and going right away the two-week journey back to Nineveh. So today, our primary focus is not actually going to be so much on Jonah's heart. We've been talking about that. Last time we were together, we talked about how Jonah's heart was moved to repentance. Next week, we're going to see how God continue. or next time we're together, we'll hear about the finality of what God's doing in his heart. But today, our main focus is actually going to be on what happens in the city of Nineveh. We are going to see the anatomy of a revival. So for this morning... Consider yourself in the place of Jonah as we consider his mission, consider your own. But let me first make sure that we're on the same page by defining our terms. I am defining the word revival to mean a broad-scale transformation of a culture that is rooted and grounded in salvation from sin. 
Now, this is important to define because there are massive and irreconcilable differences between this definition and other popular definitions or beliefs about what revival is. So let me share with you a few of the ways that people define or understand what they mean by the word revival. Some people define revival as a cultural return to morality. Just going back to the good old days. We're going to stop doing all these bad, these bad things and start doing good things as a culture. But this is a problem of order. Morality follows conviction that comes from knowing and following Jesus. So this is a, a mistaken comprehension of order. Some people define revival as a group of believers who are coming to a deeper sense of God's presence or a more exp uh, deeper expression of emotional worship. And while I acknowledge that those things can and certainly will accompany revival, they are the symptoms of the actual change. True revival is built on repentance, not merely on emotion. Many times when you hear people saying that there was a rev revival, they mark that and they define that and they give evidence of that by people crying or weeping or bowing or whatever. But if there is genuine repentance, it will not be momentary, it will be lasting. It is much deeper than emotion. One scholar defines revival as God's invasion into the lives of one or more of God's people in order to awaken them for kingdom ministry. Now, this I actually found this week in a book that was recommended to me on parenting by Rocky, who is downstairs in the overflow this morning. If you want to learn more about that book, you can learn from him. And I will say that's actually a pretty good definition. However, it's failing in terms of scope regarding what we're discussing today. That is an excellent definition of personal revival. However, it does not fit what is happening in our text this morning, where it is wide-scale. That definition focuses on individual hearts, where what we are seeing in Nineveh is when an entire city turns to the Lord. We have seen this occur in various places throughout history. So again, for today's purposes, we are going to define revival as a broad-scale transformation of a culture that is rooted and grounded in salvation from sin. So now that I've defined revival, allow me to defend its presence here in this chapter. And there's a reason that I need to do that. There are many people in the theological world across the spectrum who would look at this passage and they would say, this is not genuine salvation taking place. They would say that this is a temporary conviction of evil, but there is actually no salvation from eternal destruction. Sure, God let their city survive, but he did not save their souls. Many people would argue that that is the case. However, the reason that they doubt the legitimacy of this revival is that roughly 100 years later, God judged the Assyrians and Nineveh, and it was completely annihilated because of their wickedness. And so they will say, it's impossible that you could go from 100 years of being completely revived to being completely destroyed. Not only was that possible, but it is certain Consider what Jesus said about these people that we are reading about today, these people in Nineveh. Here's what Jesus says in Matthew 12, 41. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation, and they will condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. In other words, these people in Nineveh genuinely repented. According to Jesus, he reveals that from heaven's perspective, this was a genuine heart change that pleased the Lord. 
So for that reason, we are going to spend the rest of our time drawing out four observations about revival that we see here in this chapter. This is the command that God gave to Jonah in verse 2. He says, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. Now, for those keeping score, this is nearly identical to the calling that God gave Jonah back in chapter 1. There is only one key difference that is now included, and that is that God says these words, you are to inform them, quote, the message that I tell you. In other words, now he is saying the exact same thing, but Jonah, I'm going to put words in your mouth. Now, here is our first observation of the morning, and that is that revival comes through words. Now, that might sound obvious, but I feel like a lot of us need to hear and be reminded this truth. Jonah was commanded to speak, but Jonah was not free to speak whatever words he wanted. His responsibility was to loudly declare with great passion the words that God would give him to speak. Now, this is true of any faithful preacher. It is not the job of a pastor, for example, to promote his own agenda. Preachers are not merely called to be entertainers or comedians or storytellers, although God can certainly gift pastors or preachers in that way. The call of a preacher is to speak God's word. Now, I have to remind you, and I have said this many times, I have no ability to help you apart from God's word. I cannot change your heart. I cannot motivate you to obedience. I cannot cause you to love others. I cannot grow your faith. And all of these are products of hearing the word of God and submitting to them. It is a product of the Holy Spirit working through God's word. And that comes through speech. Now, we cannot and we must not deviate from the calling to preach the word. And likewise, as believers, you have the calling to carry this message as well. This is not to be relegated to a pulpit. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 18 through 20 refers to you and I as ambassadors for Christ. It is our responsibility as citizens of heaven to live here as ambassadors. We have a political domain. We are representatives of another kingdom. And it is our responsibility to declare and proclaim and represent our king and his agenda here in this place right now. Now, how can we remain silent? I want to ask a question that I hope you will not just answer quickly and move on from. But I want to know how many people in your life are unaware that you are a Christian? How many people has God placed within your sphere of influence who have no idea what you believe? How many of these people will never in their life be confronted with the gospel? It is a bizarre thing to think, but in this country, in this county, in your neighborhood, perhaps in your job, there are people who live every day of their life. They will wake up every morning and go to bed every night through an entire lifetime and never actually hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. They will hear a lot of caricatures of it. They will get an idea from TV of what Hollywood thinks of Christianity. They will have a sense of what maybe the, the church might teach, but how often are they actually going to hear the truth of God's saving grace? That is our calling to proclaim this good news. Now, there is an old quote that is falsely attributed to St. Francis of Assisi that says, preach the gospel always, if necessary, use words. Have any of you heard that? You've heard this, right? That is a horrendously bad quote. It is a terrible saying. I like how uh, one pastor explains it. He says that this is like saying, feed the hungry always, if necessary, use food. You cannot 
do what he is calling you to do, preach the gospel, without words. Our message is a message, not just of moral superiority or an attitude reform, which is what people might see in you. They must also hear the gospel in order to be saved from their sin. Nobody is going to learn that from your work ethic or from your neighborly attitude. So as obvious as this may sound, it must be said that revival will never, ever, ever, ever come without this, Preach the gospel with your words. Verse three says, Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh is one of the oldest cities in the world and the ruins of it are still there in modern day Iraq. And this text tells us that Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. And it refers to it as being three days journey in breadth. Now, let me clarify. This does not mean that it took Jonah three days to arrive there from the beach. Now, if you take out the map in the back of your Bible and you begin doing some examination, you will see that there is no possible way that anywhere in the Mediterranean is within three days of this place. The fastest he would have arrived would have been in about two weeks' time, and that's if he was riding in a cart or on an animal. It is a long journey of uh, great distance in order for him to arrive in Nineveh, no matter where that fish landed on the coast. So when it's talking here about these three days, it is not discussing how long it took him to get there, but how wide across the city actually is. Now, the indication is that Nineveh was such a large city that it would take you literally three days to walk across it. And many people have looked at that and scoffed and said, there were no ancient cities that were that big. Well, it's important to remember two things about this. First of all, in part, this would be due to the fact that they did not have highway systems or road systems like you and I do. In fact, they would intentionally convolute their streets in order to make it difficult for anyone unfamiliar with the city to make it to the city center quickly. They wanted you to have to wind through every neighborhood possible in order to get downtown so that if there was an invading army, it would take a long time for them to find the wealthiest people. And so those who had less were more on the outskirts, and it was more likely that it would take time for that invading army to make it across. So it does absolutely make sense. And remember that in those days, most people would have also had a small patch of land because that's how they would make their food, by growing it in their backyard for themselves. So this was, either way you look at it, a massive city, and its population is estimated to have been between 600,000 and 800,000 people. Think the city of Boston. Same size, twice as wicked. Now, Jonah walked a full day into the heart of the city, and there he began to preach the word of the Lord that he gave to him, and he called out these words. Yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now, here's the question. Is that all Jonah said? I mean, in Hebrew, that's five words. He says, yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now, that's an incredibly short sermon. And that's efficient. I'm preaching to you. If, if I could preach to you in five words, that would be great. But here what we see is this is probably a summary of the many words that he preached, but it gives you the heart of the message that was given to them. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now God, as he so often does, was using the threat of judgment in order to bring people to an awareness of his power and also of his perfect standard. And as we're going to see here in the next chapter, Jonah has no interest in these people being spared. His desire was actually to see this take place, that in 40 days, they would be wiped off the map. Now, this leads me to believe that even though he was obeying God, I doubt that he was very enthusiastic about this sermon. 
He was probably not working hard to persuade the people to change. He, he wasn't pleading with them to repent. He wasn't seeking them to reconcile with God. Jonah was literally doing the bare minimum necessary to not get eaten by a fish again. He was just going through the motions. He did what God said to do, but clearly his heart is not in it. Which brings us now to our second main observation of the morning, which is this. Our message is the gospel. Now here we find ourselves contrasting a little bit with Jonah. Whereas Jonah was called to bring a message of destruction, we also carry the words of deliverance. Jonah preached about impending doom, but he failed to proclaim the way of escape. Now, obviously, the people of Assyria understood intrinsically that by warning them, God was indicating that there was a chance for repentance. Phil Johnson explains it this way well when he says, judgment is always conditional, even if the condition is not stated. In other words, they would have understood if God wanted to kill us, he could just do so without talking to us. But instead, he has sent us a messenger. Therefore, he is warning us. So even though Jonah doesn't teach them about repentance, we still see that they consider there may be an opportunity to cause the Lord to hear their cry through repentance. Now, here's what you and I must understand, that we are called to preach judgment. There are many places, many churches, many Christians who do not like the idea of preaching the judgment of God. But just like Jonah did, we are called to tell people there is hell to pay. There is danger to continue on in rebellion against God. There is going to be a judgment day. Now, we preach judgment, but we always preach a conditional judgment. We must inform the world that there are dire consequences to rejecting Christ. However, we must also preach to them the good news. That's the bad part of the good news. Well, there is also redemption available. Have you ever been in the city and you've seen somebody who's standing in a box? Um, for some reason, when you get to the lower parts of the city, downtown, I see this more often, and there's somebody who's standing there with a sign that says, you're going to hell or something like that, and they are preaching, and they're, they're very passionate, but as they're talking to those walking by, they're declaring that you are on your way to hell. Now, interestingly, um, as a Christian, at one point, I remember walking past one of these people and him telling me, pointing at me, telling me, you are going to hell. You are a liar. You are a thief. And I'm thinking, praise God that I'm not, but this guy has no idea. But it almost seemed like he was happy to tell me this. Like he was happy that I was going to be experiencing judgment. Now, it is important for us to emphasize that there is judgment but all the more we must present the good news of the gospel. So at this point, the chapter completely shifts and the camera lens moves away from Jonah and it sits squarely on the people of Nineveh for the rest of the chapter. And we see in these pages the complete transformation of this society. But before we see what they become, let me first inform you who these people were. Now, in order for a nation to have extensive borders like Assyria, these, this was the greatest nation in the world at the time, in order for this to happen, they must have a large army to protect itself from enemies, both from without and traitors within. But the problem with having a professional army is that it becomes very hard to feed and finance them. None of the men in that army are going to be raising crops. Therefore, they must be fed by others. They don't produce, they only consume. So the only way to offset that is to continue attacking and plundering all of the people around you. And the Lord had allowed Assyria to grow a wide empire, reaching from modern-day Turkey all the way to Turkmenistan. 
This was a massive kingdom, and it was immensely wealthy and powerful. And one of the interesting things about the Assyrians is we have a ton of historical data about them. We actually have information from basically every other kingdom, and they all say the same thing. These guys are the worst. These guys are incredibly violent. They are vicious. If you want to hear a lot about them from the Bible, you can read God's perspective on them from Habakkuk chapter 1, where he compares them to leopards who run throughout the nation, and he compares them to war horses that trample everything, and he compares them to lions who devour. He is talking about them as if they are monsters, just like everyone else spoke about them. And that's because they were vicious, horrendous, monstrous people. One of the defining characteristics was their brutality. They were absolutely cruel to their enemies, often torturing them as a form of pleasure. And not only were the men in the army involved in this, they actually had women and children taking part in these horrific acts of violence. They were known for cutting out eyes and tongues of their enemies and parading them around towns. They had perfected a form of torture whereby they would slowly flay the skin off of a person. And I'm not going to get into the details, I'll leave that to your imagination for the sake of young ears in the room. But man, the stuff they did was horrific and disturbing in in terms of forms of torture. I'll simply leave that to allow you to search that out on your own. But I will just say, these people were vile and monstrous. And the short story is, these people were deeply violent in their culture. They applauded it. They didn't view violence as a negative thing. And this was not a sin that they were ignorant about. That is why when the king hears of Jonah's sermon, he commands the people to stop being evil in general. But then notice he pinpoints one particular sin. He said, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Now, our third main observation about this revival is this, is that the message is powerful despite its messenger. Like I said before, Jonah is a terrible messenger. His attitude was awful. And as we see later in chapter four, even as he is proclaiming these words, he is fantasizing about these people actually being destroyed. So notice the response of the people in verse five. I want you to see clearly what the word says. The people of Nineveh believed Jonah. It doesn't say that. It says the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. It does not say they believed Jonah. They believed the words of God himself. Now, there are likely occasions in your life when you have felt inadequate to share your faith. And there are many reasons for that. There are hundreds we could probably list, but I'm going to boil down and only focus on two of them this morning. First of all, you may have a fear of man. And let me clarify what I mean by that. We live in a world where we still have freedom of religion. Here in the United States, we can say what we want to say about Christ without fear of reprisal. We come to church and we are not fearful that the police are going to come in and line us up against the wall and take our data and put us in some kind of a system where we are going to be checked on regularly by the government. They're not going to walk into our church and arrest somebody. They're not going to throw a grenade through the window and we don't have to have fear that they're going to take our children away from us for believing in Jesus Christ. In some places around the world this morning, there are people gathering under those circumstances. So by fear of man, I mean that we have an inflated view of ourselves so far that we have a fear of our reputation. We are afraid that somebody will think that we are dumb or that we are old-fashioned. We're afraid that we might not be invited to a dinner party, so we stay silent about the king of kings who bought you at the price of his own blood. So sometimes we just have a fear of man. 
The second reason related to the first is that we might fear we're not qualified as messengers. Now, you might think that you don't know enough scripture. Maybe you, you say, I haven't taken enough classes or read enough books. Well, first of all, if you're following the Bible reading plan that the church is going through this year, you just recently read through Exodus chapter 3. And do you remember Moses' excuse in Exodus chapter 3? He said to God, when God told him to go back to Egypt and speak to Pharaoh, he says, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Moses feels his inadequacy as a messenger, but notice what God does not do. God does not come to Moses and say, well, guess what, Moses? You're actually a lot better than you think you are. You're actually much more capable than you expect. Like you're gonna go in there and you're going to rock this thing. Don't worry at all about who you are. I know that you are perfectly strong enough to go do this. Now, God doesn't say anything like that. He doesn't speak about his skill or his capability. God replies, I will be with you. That's it. And that is the answer. In the very next chapter, Moses actually doubles down on his desire not to go back to Egypt. And he uses this excuse, I'm a poor speaker. He says, oh Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I'm slow of speech and of tongue. And then the Lord said to him, who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. You don't have an excuse. You might not feel adequate. Moses was not adequate. You are not adequate. You cannot do anything to create revival in one person or in a culture. You can't do that, but you can be faithful and God can do that. Moses was not elegant, eloquent, but God said, it's not about you or your abilities. It is about me. And so God often uses unskilled, untrained, unlikely vessels like you and me to be agents of action in bringing about revival. God can and he will use your efforts far beyond your abilities. So yes, study to show yourself approved. Yes, memorize scripture. Yes, take classes and read books. Yes, be ready with an answer to anyone who asks. Be prepared in season and out of season. Yes, be ready. But also be faithful to trust that God is the one who brings the increase and that revival comes from the work of his hands. Paul planted, Apollos waters, but God brings the increase. So let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. He gets all the glory. Which brings us to our fourth observation regarding revival, which is that true revival is grounded in a fear of the Lord. Follow along starting again in verse six. It says, the word reached the king of Nineveh and he arose from his throne, removed his robe and covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and pub published throughout Nineveh, quote, by the decree of the king of the no and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and turn from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Now, God had informed these people that they had exactly 40 days left. He gave them a countdown clock to their impending doom. But he did not say, they did not say rather, well, you know what? We've got 40 days. So I guess that means I've got 39 more days to do whatever I want and be as violent as I want and go party as much as I want. And then on the 40th day, we'll figure this thing out and I'll make it right. 
Instead, they spent their days in mourning over their sin, and they took up a universal Middle Eastern practice of mourning, which was to cover themselves in sackcloth and ashes, and they fasted and required that even their livestock fasted. If you have children, you know that if they miss even, not even, not even if they miss a meal, but if their meal is like 30 minutes late, they're like, I'm dying, I need food. Can you imagine the parents in this town saying, we're not eating again today, buddy. We're not eating again today, buddy. And if you don't have children, you don't have to look beyond your own mirror to say, man, that's tough to deny yourself constantly over and over. These people took it seriously. Now we see that Jonah doesn't stick around. As we'll see next week, he made his way up the hills nearby to watch and hope that God would destroy them like he did to Sodom and Gomorrah. But can you imagine the 40th day? Can you imagine being in Assyria, waking up that morning, wondering if what you had done had pleased the Lord, wondering if judgment was still coming? Now, I don't know what you would be doing, but I would probably be gathered together with my wife and kids, pleading with the Lord, oh, please be merciful. Please, God, be merciful. Don't destroy us, we pray. And every hour that ticked by on the clock would be another indication of God's mercy. Every single breath that they breathed was a reminder that God did not have to spare them, but that he is good and kind and ready to forgive. But in reality, that's not actually much different than our scenario right here and now. Because God has put a countdown clock over your life, you just can't see it. It's right over your head, but you can't find it. God has not told you the days of your life like he had told to Nineveh. He has not told you how long it will be before you experience that judgment. So do not wait. Do not rely on patience. Know that your days are numbered. If you're not a Christian, please understand that you are living under the ticking clock of God's judgment. Psalm 90 says, teach us, Lord, to number our days so that we might get a heart of wisdom. Number your days. Know that you are standing at the precipice of hell itself. The Assyrians had a countdown to their destruction if they failed to repent. Unbelievers, so do you. You just don't know where that hour hand is. So repent, I, I plead with you, repent and trust in the Lord and seek him. For as the word says, today is the day of salvation. God never makes empty threats. And if he promises judgment, he will send judgment. However, we also see that with every threat of judgment, there is also a call to repentance. We see that God is faithful to receive anyone who will turn to him. Verse 10, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Thank God that he is merciful to individuals like you and I. So if you are a believer, this should spark revival in your own heart, a passion for the Lord in your own heart. Now, we might not see revival occur on a broad scale on Long Island like we see here in Nineveh. We might not see it be as all-encompassing as the first great awakening, but large-scale transformation begins with individual hearts being transformed. So pray with me that the Lord would heal our land and that he would do radical work to transform our culture by first transforming people. But pray that that would begin with us. Put feet to your prayers as we seek to be the light and the salt of the world so that just like the people of Nineveh, we would see many sons and daughters brought to the family of God. We want to see that revival take place here. I encourage you, don't just go through the motions of Christianity. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Let's pray. 
Father God, we thank you for the picture of revival that we see here in Jonah chapter 3. And we ask, Lord, that you would please help us by bringing such a zeal into the hearts of the people of this church that we might not be satisfied without proclamation of the gospel, that we would not be comfortable if we are keeping our mouth closed. Help us, God, to be faithful in sharing what you have done. May we not be fearful. May we not be terrible uh, representatives like Jonah. Lord, help us to be good representatives of Christ by proclaiming both by our lives and especially with our words what you have done for us. Lord, I ask for each and every one of us here that we would have a personal revival of the soul so that we might see broad-scale radical transformation of our culture and community that comes through salvation from sin. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.